All right, we are back. Let's see if we can do a little bit of science here. That would include our obituary. Our person of interest is someone that was mentioned in our interview with Neil deGrasse Tyson uh, some months back. And, and by the way, that interview in a slightly edited version is in the current edition of KDVations, which is KDVS's uh, uh, in-house magazine. You'll find a lot of worthy material in there, uh, you know, time and time again. KDVations comes out four times a year. And anyway, during our interview with astronomer Neil deGrasse Tyson, he mentioned uh, Venetia Fair. She was the woman who named the planet Pluto. Mrs. Fair died April 30th at her hometown of Epson, uh, south of London. Uh, no cause of death was reported. And as, and as recounted by Neil deGrasse Tyson, it was back in March of 1930 when she was 11 that uh, when the family was having breakfast and her grandfather, the retired head of the library at Oxford University, read a newspaper account of the discovery of a mysterious new planet. He wanted aloud what it should be called. 11-year-old Venetia piped up, why not Pluto? Acquainted with classical mythology, uh, the young uh, Venetia knew that the planets were named after the ancient gods. But apparently he had not really tried to connect the darkness of the mythic Pluto's dominion and the darkness uh, being so far from the sun. She just thought of it because it hadn't been used yet. Her grandfather, Falconer Madan, quickly saw the merit in her suggestion and carried it to an astronomer that he knew. Endorsed speedily at Britain's highest astronomical levels, the proposal was then forwarded to the Lowell Observatory in Arizona, where the discovery was made and where names were under consideration. And as we all now know, Pluto won. The announcement came on May 1st, 1930. Mrs. Fair was given public credit. Asked about it many decades later, she said, Yes, I certainly was thrilled. It was very exciting for a small girl, really, at the time. As it happened over the years, an asteroid was named after her, as was an instrument being carried currently out on the New Horizons NASA spacecraft that is due to rendezvous with Pluto in 2015. For years, Venetia Fair was the only living person to have named a planet, but few of the people she met had any idea. On the whole, she said, it doesn't arise in conversation, and you just don't go around telling people that you named Pluto. And of course, as you well know, in recent years, Pluto has been stripped of its planetary status because of its failure to meet certain criteria. Venetia Fair was unruffled by the debate, saying that her age, she was indifferent to it. Although, she added, I suppose I would prefer that it remain a planet. It does appear that Venetia Fair is going to be the last person to name a planet until we find some that are, uh, well, we've already found many that are orbiting other stars, but uh, no one's gotten around to naming them yet. So far, they've been called things like Epsilon Eridani B, which frankly just does not have the ring of, like, Vulcan. And speaking of Vulcans, uh, we're sad to report we have not yet taken in the new Star Trek movie. But if you have, please forward us your comments at info at radioparallax.com. Speaking of movies, I, I must uh, tell you, I was delighted uh, last weekend to travel down to my hometown of Fremont, which is re in reality composed of what were five smaller towns prior to 1958. One of those was Niles. Between 19, uh, I guess about 12 and about 1919, there were many, many movies made in Niles, in the Niles Canyon area between Sonol and Fremont. 
Charlie Chaplin actually made four movies there for the SNA Studios. And the good people in Niles now have an SNA Film Museum to commemorate uh, the former bit of Hollywood that was in the Bay Area. And every Saturday they generally uh, put on numerous silent films. It's a very worthy endeavor, and I'm pleased to note that as follow-up on the article we cited a couple months back about director William Wellman, William Wellman Jr. traveled to the SNA Museum last Saturday to put on uh, two things. One, his documentary about his dad, titled Wild Bill, which we were reporting on uh, fully in June by interviewing Mr. Wellman, who's kindly agreed to talk to us. But to every bit as interestingly and perhaps more so, the original Oscar winner, Wings, was shown in probably the best existing print. Wings was directed by William Wellman Sr. and won the first Academy Award for Best Picture, although it wasn't called Best Picture in 1929. And this is a chance to see a silent film as a silent film needs to be seen with someone accompanying it on piano. In fact, the original score for the movie was available to Dr. Frederick Hodges, who played it at appropriate scenes, and it was really, uh, it was a movie viewing experience the likes of which I had never come close to. The experience was greatly enhanced by the appearance of four-time Oscar-winning sound man Ben Burt, who recreated many of the sound effects for the movie live in the theater. All in all, it was a wonderful event, and I look forward to talking uh, about it at great length uh, next month in June. And uh, Ben Burt did agree to come speak with us as as well. It was helped a bit by the fact that he's, I guess, got a couple of daughters that live in Davis. All right, let's kind of return to the subject of medicine here briefly. We doctors have depended upon the placebo effect uh, for millennia to, <laughs> to enhance our reputations, something which Simon Singh talked about at great length in Trick or Treatment. But here's an item from New Scientist, uh, the 16th of May issue that I think I just need to read. Said the magazine, If you're taking a medication, do you always read the label to learn about the possible side effects? It might seem like a good idea, But beware, there is growing evidence that simply believing something will be bad for you can make it genuinely bad for you. This might sound like voodoo, and indeed it is how voodoo works, but that is no reason to dismiss it as mumbo-jumbo. On the contrary, it is to be taken seriously. While it is a tricky problem to study, what we do know suggests that needless suffering could be avoided if modern medicine paid more attention to the power of words. Doctors have a duty to inform their patients about side effects, but they should be exploring ways of doing this that minimize the voodoo effect. That same issue of New Scientist has a lengthy article explaining how it is that English libel laws are being used to silence uh, scientific critics. And speaking of deep, deep space, as they were a moment ago with Pluto... We should note that missions like uh, Galileo and Cassini, which go to the outer edges of the solar system, need something to power the spacecraft, uh, because that far out you really can't rely on um, solar power. What these spacecraft have relied upon are what are called radioisotope thermoelectric generators, RTGs. These convert the heat from radioactive decay into electricity. And guess what? It turns out the supplies of the energy uh, source used, plutonium-238, are expected to run out by 2018. 
As it happens, the fuel was a byproduct of reactors that produced weapons during the Cold War but were decommissioned decades ago. So the government's going to have to step in and see if it can't produce a little more plutonium-238 for deep space missions. Apparently about $150 million is going to have to be invested to make this work, and, well, I think that's, that's probably money well spent. Let's see, at $2 billion a week for the fiasco of the war in Iraq, uh, what, what's $150 million cover? Let's see, according to my calculations, oh, about 12 hours of war. Keep in mind, we spend that every 12 hours, week in, week out, month in, month out, at minimum. We're trying to steer clear of politics on today's program. Except to note, perhaps, that Benjamin Netanyahu is in Washington this week, and there's going to be a lot of pressure put on him by the Obama administration to acknowledge the need for a Palestinian state, something which uh, his party has not acknowledged. In fact, there are even some Israeli apologists saying, well, just because the administration's saying that we can't have any more settlements doesn't mean we can't expand the settlements we already have. But uh, we're not going to go into that any further today. Let's see, we got about three minutes left. Oh, God, how about this item from China? Chinese scientists working at the National Research Institute for Family Planning of Beijing in Beijing have found that testosterone shots greatly reduce the average male sperm count there by about 99%. These scientists are saying they may, they may have uh, developed a highly effective male contraceptive method. We'll continue to follow that story, but we certainly hope so. China's got the same area as the United States, and it's got four times as many people. We're desperately trying to get to this Vanity Fair article about uh, what happened when, when Iceland decided that they were going to become an economic powerhouse, like they were going to borrow a page from the Wall Street playbook and just decide that basically actual knowledge of economic principles did not appear to be necessary. But that's something else we don't have time for today. Let's see. All right, three final items. It appears that uh, in primates, in macaques anyway... French researchers uh, filmed a group of animals to decide how it is they were making uh, collective decisions and discovered, oddly enough, that apparently the macaques operate under a democracy. The troops making decisions about which way to go, it seems to be that the majority rules. Furthermore, uh, whether or not an individual monkey was successful in getting the rest of the group to move in a particular direction didn't seem to relate to age, sex, or status. Researchers found that even children can get the group moving. Another species studied in this regard, mountain gorillas, for example, also horses, mongooses, and wolves, turns out that leaders make the decisions about which way to go. Researchers speculate that the, uh, that the democratic instincts of primates may give them an edge, although they note that more research is needed. And uh, you don't think of wolverines and the Sierra Nevada mountains of California, but apparently uh, a wolverine has moved into California. Apparently there used to be wolverines here, but they were driven out by human activity. But at least one has made his way back, apparently from the Rocky Mountains. In fact, uh, scientists have snagged some DNA out of some hair uh, left by the animal and determined that it appears to be from Idaho. And thus would have hot-footed it uh, more than 400 miles to get where it uh, currently is uh, north of Truckee. This is the first wolverine spotted in California in 86 years, and I hope it's not discovered by a hunter. All right, final item of the day. If you're frying a steak and mindful of your health, then you should marinate it in either beer or red wine. 
Elise Sose, food scientist who measured amounts of a family of carcinogens found in fried steaks after steeping them in booze. Apparently, cooking food increases levels of cancer-causing compounds called heterocyclic amines. Fried and grilled meat are particularly high on these compounds, and because the fiery temperatures convert the sugars and amino acids into HAs, heterocyclic amines. But Isabella Ferreira and her colleagues at the University of Porto in Portugal have looked at the effects of marinating steaks in beer and wine. And it turns out that six hours of marination in either slash levels of the two types of HA by up to 90% compared with unmarinated steak. Anyway, the heat's here. Summer barbecue season is upon us, and there's some advice for you. We don't want to suggest that a steak marinated in beer or red wine is necessarily a particularly healthy food, but, you know, like most things in moderation, you'll probably be okay. And if you're okay, we're okay. But we're out of time for today's show. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. Stay tuned now for Ryan and his inevitably compelling musical choices to follow for the next two hours. We'll see you next week at the same time. When we'll be talking to Curtis Ebsmeyer, author of Flotsometrics and the Floating World, subtitled How One Man's Obsession with Runaway Sneakers and Rubber Ducks Revolutionized Ocean Science. And you know that one's going to be fun. We'll see you then. If you catch me